Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Dr. James Wilson on the coronavirus. He's a world-leading expert in health security intelligence, he'll explain. Jason Tetro on the coronavirus as well, the germ guy, microbiologist, and host of the super awesome Science Show podcast. On Brexit, Crystal Gomansing, Global News Europe Bureau Chief, will be joining us from London. And uh, John Zogby, pollster, op-ed writer, and author on the Trump impeachment trial winding down. Some of what's on the podcast. The coronavirus, the World Health Organization, says countries should prepare for coronavirus outbreaks and be ready for a domestic outbreak control as death tolls rise. Dr. James Wilson is the director of the Nevada Medical Intelligence Center. He's a world-leading expert in health security intelligence. He led the creation of several of the most powerful systems in the world used for anticipation, detection, and warning of infectious disease crises and disasters. He served as an infectious diseases advisor to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the World Health Organization. And Dr. Wilson joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Wilson, thank you very much. And what is health security intelligence? And what can you tell us about the systems you've developed for anticipation, detection, and warning of infectious disease crises and disasters? Hi there. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for, uh, for having me on your show. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a domain that's uh, very specialized, and really the focus that that our team has is on outbreaks that appear to be unusual. Um, you know, when you are taking a look at the world on a daily basis, you're basically looking at thousands and thousands of of reports of outbreaks or epidemics. The vast majority of which is uh, routine and well known to local health authorities. Um, and therefore easily, you know, managed or um, at least mitigated um, by those communities, right? They're used to seeing those diseases, right? And it's nothing suspicious or unusual from their perspective. Um, our team focuses on the unusual, you know, the um, sort of that uppercut, if you will, and very rare uh, reporting of things that, that don't look right. And certainly the, the current crisis fell under that category when we were, um, you know, seeing the reporting coming out in late December and uh, into uh, early January to the present. Uh, one of the real concerns about this current outbreak uh, globally of the coronavirus, how would you, uh, if, I don't know what, if you have a scale, Dr. Wilson, but if you had a scale of 1 to 10, where might this current outbreak today rank? Well, we don't really have a uh, have a scale. I don't imagine you do, that. but that's just my layman's person yeah. layman's question. Sure, sure. Well, I think I think that ten, let's just let's just talk about or just go ahead and nip this in the bud. What most folks tend to do is they tend to um, 
think about the Hollywood imagery of apocalypse and catastrophe that they see on TV shows and movies. And I think that a lot of times the, uh, you know, some of the social media and, and some of the newspapers around the world play into that because it sells, right? We love being entertained by the extreme worst case scenarios, right? The way that, that we look at these kinds of issues is, well, okay, the numbers look scary, right? But it's very difficult to put those numbers in perspective. And you've seen, um, thankfully, this time around, you've seen media talking about the perspective of influenza, right? And, you know, there are millions of infections every year here in our country, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations, tens of thousands of deaths. At the same time, we're fighting patients to vaccinate. <laughs> you know, people fight us on vaccinations. And yet here we have a couple hundred fatalities in a country of, you know, how many people? You know, billions of people, right? And you're, you're right. wondering, okay, well, are we losing perspective here? And indeed, uh, would we even have noticed this outbreak before SARS, right? So part of the driver here that we're seeing is we have much more sophisticated access to um, diagnostics and surveillance and surveillance methodologies that enable us to recognize things much, much earlier than we, than we were able to, you know, 20 years ago. And when I say we, I mean the collective we, including China. And so when we see these signals in, in the world, you know, and you have this, this sort of public tendency, if you will, and even among some analysts of jumping straight to the worst case scenarios, you have to kind of say, okay, now hang on a second. Let's, let's hit the pause button and back up and let's ask ourselves some basic questions. What's this doing to the healthcare infrastructure in China, for instance? If this were, for example, a true 1918 pandemic scenario, um, we know back then in 1918 that the uh, the crisis was abruptly overwhelming for any um, healthcare system, right? So, for example, in Philadelphia, within a matter of two weeks of recognizing cases in their city, their medical infrastructure was grossly overwhelmed and required the use of schools and businesses and, and some of the military depots to handle the patient surge, right? Yeah. Very fast. And the mortuary services were overwhelmed by the third week, right? And then it was on the decline by the end of the month during that period of, of awareness that they had a problem, right? For example, and how would that kind of pattern compare to what we're seeing in Wuhan right now? Yeah, we have hospital uh, strain being reported there, of course, um, but not exactly collapse yet, and certainly not the kinds of extreme indicators that we saw in 1918. So sometimes it's good to just sort of step back and look at the, the, the worst situation that we've seen documented with all those caveats of, well, that was 19 and this is now kind of thing, and then work yourself backwards into the more milder scenarios that we've seen, like say, the 1957 influenza pandemic or 1968 influenza pandemic and ask yourself, okay, well, what happened back then? Mm -hmm. Did that provoke state failure? Did that provoke mass, mass panic? Did that provoke socioeconomic collapse? No, they did not. They're very disruptive. And you'll find, and, and a lot of people are talking about this, thankfully, that the parallel epidemic of fear you know, raises the question of, okay, what's more disruptive here, the actual virus or the human behavior around the virus, right? And, you know, it's almost a philosophical debate. So I guess from our team's perspective, you know, we try our best. And, you know, we're all humans here. We're trying our best 
to provide a balanced risk assessment to people, you know, and say, look, we get it. This is a signal. We should be aware of the signal. We need to track it. We need to validate the hypotheses being put forth by, um, you know, experienced academics who, who are experts in their own right. And some of those validation points are, well, you know, let's look at the medical infrastructure. How's it doing? Is it keeping up? You know, and if you don't trust China, well, okay, I get that. Uh, I will say that, that the Chinese have been a heck of a lot more transparent than they were during SARS. Um, and, I, and I do disagree with some of the rhetoric that says, you know, that seeks to, to criticize how they've handled this. But, you know, that's my opinion, having done this for 25 years. Yeah. And me, I'm one amongst many. May, may I ask you what indicators you will be looking for to ass, assess any changing threat level, if you will, of this coronavirus, based on where we are today on this uh, first day of February, what are the indicators that your team will be looking at, looking for? Or have you just told us that, of looking at how well, infrastructure I, yeah. responds? So I've given you an important one, right, is, is monitoring the integrity of that healthcare infrastructure. Mm-hmm. If the Chinese are able to stay, you know, keep up with the patient demand and they're able to keep up with the level of healthcare worker infections, um, then that is an important indicator. Then the next kind of rolling step, which, of course, is a time delay that makes people nervous, but the next step is to see how countries like Thailand, uh, you know, Singapore, territories like Hong Kong, you know, particularly those countries that have dealt with SARS before, it's important to see how they manage things. The experience of Germany and their outbreak, that was another important step, right, because the, the healthcare-related outcomes in China are not equivalent to the healthcare outcomes outside of mainland China for some areas of the world, right? So there are different standards of healthcare, different standards of uh, social distancing, hygiene, you know, social contact. And so you don't want to just make the easy jump of saying, oh, well, if China is seeing, you know, a a 3% fatality, then by gosh, we're going to see a 3% fatality. That may or may not be true. And this goes back to the observations of Ebola. Did we see the same fatality rate that we saw, say, in West Africa, in in uh, the UK, Europe, uh, United States, when we saw cases there? Now, the sample sizes are very small. We know that. But you, you have to at least take a step back and pause a minute as your brain is going into hyperdrive with these worst-case scenarios. You at least need to pause and say, and then listen, does this make sense? You know, is this... Are we seeing indicators that this really is the worst-case scenario? All right. And that's what I encourage people to do is be very circumspect and just, just ask yourself the question, you know, are we, you know, what are, what are some other points of view that can kind of balance out your, your risk perception here? Well, I appreciate you coming on the program and saying all of this. I received an email from someone earlier today saying that they were up at 3 o'clock in the morning reading on social media all of the scary scenarios and couldn't get back to sleep. And I said, put your phone on charger at 11 o'clock, close your eyes, and get a good night's sleep. So maybe my advice is sound. But, uh, Dr. Wilson, thank you so much. Uh, fascinating to hear uh, you talk about uh, what it is you do and how you do it and providing us with a, with, a, with a perspective on hitting the pause button if things get a little bit too uh, excited. Yeah, I mean, the, the hallmark of a crisis is uncertainty, right? That, that nexus of uncertainty and fear. Right. And the best way to combat that is to be very circumspect about information sources, critical analysis, et cetera, of, of Internet sources. And it goes back to that classic debate of okay. is social media a good thing?
Dr. Wilson, good talking to you. I hope you'll come back. Yeah, take care, Roy. Thank you very much. Dr. James Wilson uh, joining us from uh, Nevada, where he is the director of the Nevada Medical Intelligence Center, world-leading expert in health security intelligence. Interesting to hear how they approach, how his team, his organization approaches this whole perspective of what's the virus doing, how are we responding, how's our infrastructure responding, how well are we handling it, how are people reacting, and putting together the big picture and being able from that big picture to have some assessment of what's going to happen going forward. Jason Tetro is an independent researcher in microbiology and immunology. Most of you know Jason. Visiting scientist at the University of Guelph and host of the super awesome Science Show podcast on CuriousCast.ca, award-winning podcast. And I've been talking to Jason on, uh, on this radio program and on my previous radio programs with an S at the end for, for many years. And I have to tell you this, Jason, my friend, uh, I've always felt when, whenever we've, we've, we've had a conversation, I've learned something, and I've learned something from someone who makes it interesting to learn. So thank you. It's a pleasure to not only help people understand a little bit more, but maybe even, you know, calm down some of that panic. Too. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that I had an email this morning from uh, a listener who indicated that he'd been on his phone at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, following social media, scaring himself silly, mm-hmm. uh, just just reading what other people had uh, repeated from someone else, I guess. And my advice is, you know, Turn off your phone, put it on the charger, go to bed, go to sleep. Get up in the morning and check out the truth of what's going on. Mm. Uh, being prepared makes sense. Being thoughtful makes sense. Panic makes no sense. Totally agree with you. Um, there, there's really no reason for any kind of panic. And uh, in a situation like what we're seeing with the coronavirus, I mean, you know, we've had this sort of once every decade. Uh, we're going to have these viruses that come from the animal population into the human population and you know they're going to affect certain types of people and yes we are going to have a bunch of deaths and everything but let me let me put you this way um china 1.3 billion people um the coronavirus has killed at this point 259 people um down to the south of us down in uh, america united states um the the new year's week uh, 263 people died of the uh, influenza virus. Uh, haven't heard anything about that. Haven't heard anybody waking up at 3 in the morning panicking about that. So um, it really does come down to the attention that we give these types of things as opposed to uh, the real threat that they pose. So, Jason, when we look at what we see, um, you know, we, we see what streets of uh, Wuhan deserted. We see the videos of that. We have, uh, you know, we have the president of China uh, saying two weeks ago that he has, quote, grave concern, end quote, about what's going on. When we look at what uh, and the World Health Organization uh, issuing its international emergency declaration, mm-hmm. when we look at those factors to uh, developments, to, to most people, that is really scary stuff. Um, and Because I don't know how many people actually remember SARS. Uh, and and there wasn't that kind of reaction to SARS, to the best of my memory. So when you have this kind of declaration, when you have this kind of uh, these kinds of scenes playing out on your television in front of you, when you have the the international emergency being uh, declared, mm-hmm. put some context to that, please. Well, put it this way: <clears throat> the international 
health regulations, the thing that allows the World Health Organization to call these public health emergencies, uh, didn't show up until 2005. And, and the reason for that was because of SARS. We, we never really knew that there was the possibility of having something that could become a pandemic uh, until we saw what happened with SARS in 2003. I mean, that's 17 years ago. But here's where the problem is. Um, this IHR and this public health emergency, um, we're still learning how to get it right when it comes to, you know, the moment that we should be calling it, uh, how should we be doing it, and, and how extensive should it be? Because I don't know, do you remember that uh, we did have a pandemic back in 2009-2010, no. uh, influenza? I, you know, I, I only know that there was that it was going on and there was H1N1 because I, I read the research yeah. leading into my, my previous guest. But, but apart from that, I wouldn't, I would have forgotten. Yeah, exactly. And when we did have a pandemic and, you know, it was a public health emergency, people got all upset. People thought the World Health Organization was crying wolf. I remember. Oh, now. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is that there have been a, new, a number of times where this uh, International Health Regulation Committee has, you know, been brought together to talk about things, to try and find out if they should call it a global health emergency. And usually, if it does get to a point where it's called, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who are really happy about this because they got what they want. But as, you know, we start to see things going downhill uh, and, and we don't see the pandemic that we expect, people get to be really annoyed at the WHO going, well, why did you scare us so much? And I'm afraid that's going to happen now. And let me, let me explain to you this. It's now been about 10 days since China uh, essentially shut off its borders, right? Mm -hmm. Which means that uh, for another three or four days, anybody who had left before that time still could potentially pass that on. But once that sort of blockage was put in place, the likelihood of anybody getting to spread it to the rest of the world um, was pretty minimal. So I would have really liked it if they had waited until Wednesday of this week that's coming to determine whether or not that, um, you know, there was enough of a, of, of a slowdown in cases across the world to be able to not make this call. Unfortunately, it had to be made, and, well, we're seeing the repercussions now. So at uh, what point would uh, Jason Tetro begin to have some real concern? What has to happen for, for you to become concerned about developments? Um, w when we look at cases, uh, we, we sort of see uh, what we call asymptomatic. In other words, they don't really feel anything. Uh, we have the mild cases, uh, which kind of like you and I when we have a common cold, uh, we have sort of medium cases where people are under observation, but they don't need hospitalization. They're serious where they need to be in a hospital, and then, of course, there's critical where they need the ICU. When we have something that's really dangerous, and I'm talking like what we saw with SARS, where the majority of cases are at that medium or higher level, and we're not seeing any of those mild infections, then that means that we're seeing something we've never seen before, and has somehow found a way to massively, rapidly produce itself inside of us and knock us down, leaving our immune systems essentially redundant. In other words, it doesn't matter how good your immunity happens to be, this thing will kill you. We've only seen this a couple of times. Uh, we saw it with Ebola. Uh, we've seen it with SARS. Uh, 
We're not seeing it with this particular coronavirus. So that's why I'm not particularly worried about it, because the majority of people who would, be, who would come into contact with this virus most likely would only have a mild infection anyways. Hold on, Jason. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back with Jason Tetra. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, Jason, let me uh, ask you this. What's going on in our national labs right now? Uh, with respect to the coronavirus, yes, yeah. um, we're just basically seeing groups uh, both in uh, the National Laboratory in Winnipeg as well as uh, many of the others uh, across the country uh, essentially developing these diagnostic tests to be uh, both what we call sensitive and also specific. So specific means that it's detecting the coronavirus that happens to be coming out of Wuhan as opposed to any other type of virus. And then sensitive means that even if it's a very weak infection, we still pick it up. Uh, this is something that is sort of the, the second level of diagnostics, as we call it. Um, and right now, it looks like the, uh, the laboratories are, are getting to the point where we can detect even the smallest amount of this coronavirus in somebody, uh, as we found with the case in London, Ontario, just uh, the other day. So then, uh, on to my question, and I really shouldn't have carried on with my layman's interpretation of what viruses do, because <laughs> you must have been wincing when you were listening to me. But uh, can you share with us what exactly viruses do, how they learn to be more efficient, and is it possible for a virus to, in fact, mutate itself into a milder form of itself? Uh, yeah, it's all pure luck. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, because what happens is that um, when you see a, a virus um, go from one virus to two viruses, it's, it's a pretty complicated process. You have to take a course in university to understand it. Um, but um, in that process, it's not what we call 100% uh, uh, cloning all the time. There's going to be little slips here and there. And those little slips uh, cause what we, you know, the mutations that everybody hears about. Now, if a mutation is such that it changes the way that a virus may uh, infect a cell or even attach to a cell, then it could make it more virulent, in other words, more dangerous, or it could make it less virulent, uh, less problematic. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's step one. But then after it's done that, it has to still spread. And it's very difficult for a virus to spread when you're dead. So what happens is that when you see these viruses that are less uh, virulent or they don't cause as much uh, disease, um, they'll be able to spread faster and, and more frequently than, say, one which will truly knock you down, send you to the hospital and kill you. So that's what's happening. It really is just pure luck, uh, you know, luck of the draw, if you will. Um, but as sort of the, the progression of a, of a pandemic or the progression of a disease outbreak occurs, there is that likelihood, especially if it's, you know, being transferred from one person to another person to another person, like we see with flu, that it will eventually become milder in the majority of people. Mm -hmm. Now, there is one thing that you do have to understand is that there are a couple of 
sort of exceptions to this rule. Uh, one exception is if you happen to have a uh, pre-existing condition that is related to what the virus does to you. And this is what we're seeing right now in China. Um, the people who have hypertension, uh, diabetes, and uh, uh, you know, coronary artery problems, well, the problem is, is that that all involves a particular um, molecule that we have in our bodies, and that's the same molecule that this particular coronavirus uses to kill you. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a scary combo. It is, um, and so when you hear about that, you hear about the elderly men who have, uh, you know, got these uh, various different types of uh, uh, comorbidities or, or pre-existing conditions. Um, that's when you start to see large numbers of deaths. It's not representative of the whole population, though. And, and we also saw that with the pandemic in, um, uh, in 2009. We always talked about people with pre-existing conditions being hurt more um, severely than normal people by that flu virus. Uh, and then finally, the second example is that there are certain viruses out there that they attack you and you survive, and then they'll mutate out in the environment. When they come back, they'll attack you again. But instead of having proper immunity to be able to defend yourself, it'll actually be slipping and it will help that particular virus to attack more and possibly put your life in danger. And we see this with dengue virus. We see this with uh, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which circulates all over Canada every single year. And when you look at the genetics of this particular coronavirus in China, it's very similar to SARS. And if you look at the number of people who are infected and you look at their ages, they're all over the age of the people who are infected with SARS. I mean, this is all really uh, it's, it's fascinating and it's frightening at the same time. Um, I, I have about 30 seconds left. Is the World Health Organization, with its current declarations, and we have the one today that nations have to be ready to respond to outbreaks within their borders, is that helpful or not? Yeah, it, it's very helpful uh, because at, at the end of the day, everybody's getting a good practice run. The entire world is learning how to do it. And more importantly, it gives people who have that experience, the ability to get on a flight and go to countries they may not be able to go to normally to be able to help out. Uh, during MERS, I went to Saudi Arabia. I would never have gone. Mm -hmm. So this is another opportunity for people to go to different countries to be able to share their expertise. All right. Great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. You take care. Jason Tetro, The Germ Guy. Germ Files and The Germ Code are his books. And the Super Awesome Science Show podcast is on CuriousCast.ca. Joining us from London is Crystal Gumansing. She's the Global News Europe Bureau Chief. Crystal, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on the new assignment. Oh, thank you so much. Let's uh, have you please share with us what's been going on in the in the UK in the last, let's say, the, the last seventy-two hours as the as as the clock wound down to you know the proverbial midnight and Britain exiting uh, the EU. You know, it was so interesting to watch, and as a relative uh, newcomer, uh, it, it was even more fascinating. Like you said, it's been three and a half years of this debate, this back and forth. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Yes, the referendum was was vo uh, vote to leave. Uh, the Brexiteers had won, but there is still this deep-rooted mistrust, I think you can say, where people thought, okay, we're probably not going to go. And it did happen. And, you know, down at uh, Parliament Square, there was a massive party with all of the uh, the 
Leave supporters just jubilant uh, about the change. And then, of course, you saw in Scotland, uh, people were very sad. You saw people in France. You saw people in Brussels, obviously, with a different mood. So it was sort of that moment everybody had been waiting for. But it was also anticlimactic because we knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You've done some traveling in the UK in the last couple of days. Uh, what what have you found when you've gone to specific communities? And you wrote about one. I found it very interesting. You wrote about Boston. At first, I thought, what's going on in Massachusetts? But uh, you wrote about Boston, it's, UK, the, and what, what was happening there? And did you know that Boston, Massachusetts, named after Boston and Lincolnshire, Boston, England? I did not little, know that. Little history lesson there. Yeah, it was it was quite fascinating. I, when I was sitting in this, it's a small port town. Um, you know, it, it has its bases in agriculture and manufacturing. And I'm sitting in a coffee shop with the, the mayor, who was a councillor a couple of years ago when Global First chatted with him, Anton Danny. Uh, and we're chatting with a couple of the people there having coffee. And I met this one woman, uh, Judith Curra, and she reminded me of of women that I've interviewed all across Canada from you know from the Durham region to you know Medicine Hat Alberta that person who's sitting there talking about you know the wages the wages in Boston average wage about 15,000 pounds she was saying you know you can't raise a family on that we can't buy houses our roads are falling apart it's hard to get into a doctor to see a doctor Um, you know your appointments take forever those sort of basic life challenges that people face everywhere and the complaint from 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 her and many, uh, Boston voted overwhelmingly to leave. More than 70% of Boston residents voted to leave, saying they were just tired of it. They, somebody in London, she said it was, London is a bubble compared to Boston, um, Brussels even further away. They, they just didn't understand what life was like in her community, and therefore she wanted to get rid of them. So what's the reality going to be for the UK post-Brexit? I mean, for, for some 11 months now, there's not much is going to change, right? Yeah, not a whole lot is going to change. That that is that is fact. But it changes and it doesn't. So the the real hard differences, the negotiations when we talk about um, in um, you know military um, borders, trade, that all still needs to be worked out. However, there are small differences. Number one, the impact on people's identity is what we're seeing right now. It's huge. People are upset, saying, "But I'm European." Others are saying, "This is amazing because you know I'm I'm British. I'm English." and this gives me my sovereignty back. So it's interesting from that perspective, but you are going to see some intense debates. You know, the EU, uh, in losing the UK, lost a big chunk of its economy. It's also, you know, a huge military spender. It's it's a financial capital. So all of these things are going to come into play. And, you know, the UK holds a few chips in that nature, but of course they have to negotiate this. And, you know, we've heard a lot that they want to negotiate a Canada-style deal. Well, CETA took years to be finalized, six, seven years, if, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, they're thinking this will get done in 11 months. That may be optimistic, but we'll obviously be tracking all of those changes. But for now, it's the reality that they are going at it on their own. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that public opinion and over the next uh, six to 12 months is going to be really significantly important to how British officials act and how the EU reacts. Do you have a sense, you mentioned uh, Scotland, the unhappiness in Scotland over Brexit and the joy in, in, in certainly in northern uh, England over, the, uh, over Brexit. Do you have any idea, any sense of how that's going to play out uh, as far as any internal strife in the UK is concerned? 
it's going to be very interesting because a part of the rejection of the EU is the rejection of globalization, right? The idea mm -hmm. of uh, not very many people are benefiting from this, so we want to pull away. That has roots in the fact that people have lost trust in governments, feel that they are not being served. That really, if you drill down, that has to do with politicians who aren't doing a very good job. So politicians locally, MPs are going to have to really pull up their socks and, and, and do a good job because they don't have anyone in Brussels to blame anymore. You are also going to have to see some sort of attention, whether it comes in the form of, of contracts or more spending in some of these locations that were um, big exiters. You're going to have to see some kind of attention given to Scotland. Scotland is still fighting, saying, you know, we want a referendum. They Scotland voted to remain. They want to be a part of the EU. Boris Johnson has already said no. He ultimately, um, London has the right to say whether or not they get a referendum. They, had, they have not been favorable on that idea so far. Um, you know, we have seen Scotland pushing for it, saying, no, no, we, we do want this and even threatening to maybe go to the court. So you are going to have to see the government um, play a little bit of a game as far as trying to satisfy many players. Crystal, thank you for the time. Uh, looking forward to hearing more reports and seeing more reports from you uh, on Global News. And uh, you're, you're over there at a very, very interesting and pivotal time uh, politically and historically. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Crystal Gamansing is the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, joining us from London. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be very, 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 very interesting to see what happens in the U.K. over the next 6 to 12 months, particularly as the transition from uh, being governed as part of the uh, EU to being separate from the EU uh, takes place. So I want you to listen because it's winding down now. The Great Charade is winding down, also known as the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Here's the chief accuser, um, um, oh yeah, Mr. Schiff, and then we'll hear from the defendant. Have a listen. We will fight all subpoenas, and under Article 2, I can do whatever I want. And now we're here, and they make the, the astounding claim... If their case is so good, let them try without witnesses. That wouldn't fly before any judge in America. And it shouldn't fly here either. They impeached Trump. The best trade deals, the strongest military. I took care of the vets. We got choice. We got accountability for the vets. Accountability. We got all these things. And they impeach you, President. No, that's not going to work. Watch. Just watch. So uh, there they are, Schiff and Trump. And the reason I said it's a sham is because it was. It's absolutely, it was all along party lines as we knew it would be, and it'll wind up that way with a couple of defections by some recalcitrant Republicans to the Democratic argument. And we can go back 20-odd years and we can see a similar development when Bill Clinton was being uh, tried, the impeachment trial for the then President of the United States and the U.S. Senate and the Democrats were defending and the Republicans were attacking, and you wonder why people are just fed up. John Zogby is president of johnzogbystrategies.com. He's a pollster, as you well know, op-ed writer for major publications like uh, the New York Times and uh, Pundit. His book is We Are Many, We Are One. There's also the Zogby Report podcast, and uh, I was reading uh, John's most recent entry, um, 
uh, in the New York Daily News, gaming out the Iowa caucuses. So I'm almost, John, I almost don't know where to start, except why, why, don't, why don't we start where we are now? We always knew we, we were going to get here to where we are now, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Uh, there, were, there was never any mystery about this. Um, uh, and what I don't understand is despite, you know, uh, moral and, and ethical claims, I don't know if there's a prosecutor um, on a local level that would ever bring a case to trial uh, without knowing that he or she could win. Um, and why bring a case to trial if you know you're going to lose? unless what you're trying to do is make a point. And it seems like, honestly, um, that's all that's done in Washington these days is making a point uh, for your side. And I don't know who's the better for that, frankly. Well, I don't think anybody's the better, certainly not the American people, because it looks to, it looks to me anyway as though the Democrats were trying to do to Trump what they, were, what they fear the voters won't in November. Um, yeah, that's, that's another aspect of it, too. And, you know, you were wise to, to bring up the impeachment uh, 20 years ago, 20-plus years ago, of Bill Clinton. This seems to be full-circle payback, and, and it's more than likely, it's hard to believe, that uh, it's not going to end up the same way. The president stays in office, um, and actually Trump's popularity is up a few points. You know, there are no dramatic bumps that can be achieved anymore, but, you know, he's in you know, 46, 47 percent approval rating, which is about where he was, maybe even a little higher than when he was elected. Mm-hmm. Had Trump been removed from office, and there's still a, an infinitesimal chance that mm-hmm. might happen, but were he to be removed from office, half of the United States would be an absolute and total outrage. Who knows what the result of that might be? Well, that's why, you know, ultimately, despite the reviews of the Constitution, um, impeachment is is really a, a political move. Um, so we had Andrew Johnson uh, in in the late 1860s, clearly a political move. We was not removed from office after impeachment. Uh, he was not removed by one vote, but he was extremely unpopular. Richard Nixon, you know, it never got to a, a full vote in the House of Representatives, but his his approval ratings were at 23 percent. And, you know, when Nixon resigned from office after three leading uh, uh, Republicans in Congress walked from Capitol Hill to the White House and they told him, uh, you just don't have the support in our party anymore. When Nixon resigned, he didn't confess anything. He said, it looks like I've lost my political base. But now it's come to this. Um, Bill Clinton was popular all during impeachment. In fact, his numbers went uh, up quite a bit uh, during the, the impeachment uh, and, and trial. And Donald Trump's the same thing. You, do, you don't remove a president of the United States um, who's at 42, 43%, 47%, you know? And certainly not in the uh, the beginning of an election year. Now, it's all getting underway with the Iowa caucuses in, mm-hmm. in a few weeks' time. And many of us remember very well that process in 2016, which was 
really bizarre from the word go. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, John, your column in the Daily News, gaming out the Iowa caucuses, and you start by saying, I'm a big fan of the Iowa caucuses. What's, what happens with what, what, What's that all about in Iowa? I'm glad you're asking because your, your listeners, I think, need to know this is not a secret ballot. You know, people aren't going to show up somewhere to their precinct and go behind a curtain and cast a ballot. This is very public. So there's 1,768 precinct meetings in Iowa. Some will have um, 15 people in a living room. Others will have 400 in an auditorium. Uh, there are public libraries, public school basements, and, and so on. People gather. And then the moderator stands up. This is now a Democratic caucus at each of these and says, okay, all those who are with Joe Biden go over in this corner, and all those Bernie Sanders go over here, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and so on. It's very public. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in each of these, if a candidate um, does not receive uh, 15% of the total in the room, then they start shifting. And, and I have, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to do this, John. We have about 40 seconds left. How, how, I'm sorry. Can you, can you just uh, walk us through yeah, quickly? Basi- yeah, basically what happens is that all of those are tallied and someone is declared a winner of the Iowa caucuses, second, third place, and it winnows out the field. Uh, the top three probably get to truly move on to the next week in New Hampshire. Well, it's been an eventful time in the United States as far as politics are concerned over the in the recent past, and it'll no doubt be even more eventful going forward heading toward November. Always great talking to you, my friend. Thank you, John. <laughs> Take care. All right. John Zogby on The Roy Green Show is uh, president of uh, John Zogby Strategies, and his podcast is The Zogby Report. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.